Well, why don't we just clap for Jay just to make him feel good? <laughs> Sorry for the embarrassment there, Jay. Hey, uh, how are you doing? Because I feel terrible. Uh, but I'm going to do, no, just, you know, the normal junk, you know. Uh, but glad to be here. Glad you are here. See lots of fresh faces among us and need to embarrass at least a few people along the way. We got college kids back. We got people in town from Pennsylvania. We got people in town from Nashville. Stand up, David and Jenna uh, work with navigators on campus of Belmont and Vanderbilt, something like that. Good to have you guys with us. Got a brother getting married soon. Also, um, need to say goodbye this morning. Not sure when they're leaving, but Scastas, you guys want to stand up back there? Let me embarrass you. Uh, I hate it when people move away, uh, but Steve and Brandy have an awesome opportunity through Interstate Battery to move to Georgia. Uh, and uh, we are certainly going to miss them, their involvement here at Centennial. So uh, give, give them a hug. Uh, I think you guys are here to the end of May. Is that right? Or is this last Sunday? Okay. All right. Well, love you guys. I'm going to miss you. Um, so I consider it, hey, we're, we're launching other missionaries out uh, to the pagan areas of the SEC, you know? So uh, there you go. If you want to do one last whoop before you leave, Steve, okay, there it was. It is nice to get those folks on. Uh, just kidding. Just kidding. Hey, uh, we're going we're gonna to get through this. I've asked uh, one of our elders, Dan, to uh, read the scripture for us this morning and then pray for our time in God's word. Uh, why don't we do this? Would you stand in honor and respect of God's word, and then Dan will read us uh, from the passage today. Lord, we ask you to bless the reading of your word beginning at Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and said, Go, and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. 
The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me, please? Great God of heaven, we rejoice in knowing the truthfulness of your word, that you rescue your people, that you empower your people, that you give them boldness. And at the same time, Lord God, we know that there is an enemy against you and an enemy against us. And we are so grateful, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to empower your people to praise the name and to teach the name and proclaim the name of the Christ who is Jesus, the one who gives repentance and forgiveness of sins. Lord, I pray that you would speak through your servant Ross now, that we might hear your word, that you would anoint every word that comes from his mouth, and that you, Lord God, might open our ears, open our hearts to receive your word, to receive more of you, and to walk in newness of life through the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Dan. You can be seated. What makes, what makes a great team? Or what makes a great organization? What is it that gels a team together, makes a team successful, or makes a movement take hold? Um, is it a great idea? Is it, is it getting to the market first? Is it coming up with a, a, a brilliant uh, experiment or a brilliant invention? Is it finding uh, perhaps a star player? Is it having a LeBron James that can land one at the buzzer and make your team come through uh, in the last second? What is it that makes uh, for a movement? I think about things that catch on easily and sometimes I'm intrigued. One of them that I've been intrigued by lately is Bucky's. What's the deal? I mean, can you really make this big booming business off, I guess, clean restrooms? I mean, that seems to be the niche. And then a lot of food, which I guess is good, but you could get anywhere, right? Uh, I, I went to uh, college in Stillwater at Oklahoma State University, go Pokes, and um, 
Eskimo Joe's is like the second best-selling shirt, uh, and I see some heads nodding, uh, next to Hard Rock Cafe. It was started as a little burger joint, a guy flipping burgers on the side of the street uh, during ball games, and has become this just thing that Stillwater is known for, and it's got this shirt, and it's got an Eskimo on it, and it's not that great. But it catches on, and people know it, and anywhere you go, whether it's uh, to Disney World or to Florida or wherever you see people with the Eskimo Joe shirt, what is it that makes a movement, that makes a great team, that makes uh, a good business or organization? Is it finding that niche? Is it something clever? Is it meeting client needs? What is it? I'm going to ignore that, Deanna. I don't know what she said. Uh, <clears throat> but she always says stuff. Uh, it's probably a lot of those things. I mean, it's, uh, people write books about this. Some of you, I'm, I'm stepping right into your world in terms of business and leadership and things like that. Uh, but here's what uh, is fascinating to me as we get to this passage and as we're studying Acts uh, this year. Would, would your movement, would your team get off the ground if its founder uh, were executed as a criminal? Would it get off the ground if its first appointed visible leader, uh, a guy like Peter, had denied the whole idea to begin with and run away? Would you pick these 12 guys as the leaders to take this movement internationally? Would this be the motley crew that you would choose? And I would say none of us would. And what we find in the scriptures and what we find through the story of Acts is it's not, that any, it's not anything that we have that makes this movement continue. It's who we have. And it's who indwells the church, the Spirit of God. But this morning, as we look at this text, uh, this text where a guy named Gamaliel, I think that's the way you say his name, Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee, at, as Dan read us, at the, as this council who's frustrated with Jesus' followers, as they meet, this Pharisee named Gamaliel says, hey, look, if this thing is of man, if it's just a bunch of fishermen with another new idea and another religious, you know, uh, philosophy, it'll die out. So let it go. But if it's of God, you're not going to stop it. It's going to go on. And Gamaliel is right, because 2,000 years later, this thing goes on on the backs of weak people like you and me. And isn't that comforting? And so the title of today's sermon is Church Unstoppable. Church Unstoppable because God has decided to use this weak vessel, these weak people called believers, called his gathered church, to make an international movement. And it continues to go on. And in Jesus' own words, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I want us to look this morning uh, at some things that make this, from a human and from a supernatural perspective, make this thing move. We've talked about this in weeks past. If you're visiting here this morning, uh, typically I have three points. Some people will laugh when you say that because it's usually just three points, right? Occasionally it's four or five. Uh, you are here on a special Sunday because uh, you get a lot of bang for your bucks that you're putting in the offering plate, which we don't have offering plates, but the baskets are they're hanging on the wall back there, by the way. Uh, because this morning I have 20 points. 
All right, 20 points. So here's, here's the first 14. I just couldn't, I couldn't narrow it down. Okay, so I'm just going to read these as the observations from this whole long passage, which was really hard. Okay, so these are just some vital aspects of a growing church. And uh, if this takes too long, we'll just close the Bible and then we'll pray and have communion. Okay, uh, but number one, all of these from chapter five, and we could say from other parts of Scripture. And these don't. Don't try to write these down, okay? God bless you, but don't try to write. These are on the CC app. If you go on our CC app, the sermons part, they're right there, okay? You can have them if you, if you like them. Number one, unity characterizes them. Unity characterizes them. They're all different backgrounds. They're, they're coming together. Uh, unity characterizes them. Power is demonstrated through them. We see the miraculous again in this passage. Fear and suspicion abounds concerning them. Honor is given to them. New converts join them. The hurting and needy are brought to them. News spreads about them. Others are jealous of them. Persecution finds them. God protects and provides for them. Courage and boldness are displayed through them. Teaching and preaching define them. Get this one, number 13, joy exudes from them. And finally, number 14, flexibility and persistence mark them. But what I want to hone in on this morning, okay, here's the final six. I've taken six more and just made them couplets. Uh, but here's, here's uh, point number one is that those who follow Jesus, to follow Jesus, we will be both power, we will have both power and truth, push and pull, and opposition and joy. Okay, let me say that again. To follow Jesus means there will be both power and truth, push and pull, and opposition and joy. Okay, so starting off there with the first two, power and truth. What we see in the first verses there, verses 12 through 16, is power. And this is really, this is an answer to prayer. If you look back, if you were with us as we were in chapter 4, uh, the first time these guys got in hot water with the religious officials, they uh, went back and they reported, hey, we're in trouble. And instead of whining about it, they celebrated it. And they prayed and they asked God, chapter 4, verse 29 and 30, they're praying and they're, they're thanking God for his sovereignty and they say, now, Lord, look upon their threats, verse 29, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They get slapped on the wrist. They get brought before the court and told to shut their mouths. They're being politically incorrect. They're disturbing the peace. They've got wild claims. And what do they do? They go back and they gather and they don't whine, but they pray. And what do they pray for? Protection? No. I pray for more boldness. And so what's happening in chapter 5 is the answer to their prayer that they asked, the prayer that they prayed in chapter 4. But they don't just pray for boldness. Look at verse 30. It says, give us boldness, verse 30, while you stretch out your hands to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. What were they asking for? They were asking for boldness and they were asking for power that God would do miraculous things to heal people, to get people's attention, to authenticate their ministry. And that, again, is what is happening in chapter 5. 
So in verses 12, it says, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. It goes on and says that even in the midst of opposition, verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes, both men and women, and then they're bringing from outside of Jerusalem, people were bringing sick ones. Verse 16, they were bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And I've been challenging us through this series, as I've been challenged myself. God doesn't promise to heal every sickness, but God has given us the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that indwelled these believers, and sometimes I think we rob Him of the power that He wants to exercise through us. God still heals. Now, here's an interesting Bible study, um, because I want to be fair about this. There's There's a theological position that says that these healings and these supernatural gifts that were given to the early church were given to those first apostles as a way solely of authenticating their message and authenticating their apostleship, and that since the time of the apostles, there's not need, there's not reason for these miracles or these supernatural gifts. That's a legitimate interpretation that people have taught through 2,000 years of church history. And in fact, here's an interesting uh, study, if you're interested in this. Just go through the book of Acts, particularly the first five chapters, and every time you see the miraculous, notice that that's true. It is often, almost 100% up to chapter 5, that the miracles are being done by the apostles. There is an authenticating aspect to the miraculous. But whether you believe that or not, that those gifts have ceased God is still a God of power who sometimes interrupts natural law and does miracles. And so even if you believe people have the gift of healing or whether you don't believe people have the gift of healing, God sometimes still heals through our prayers, even apart from our faith. And I've been challenging us through this series to not only because we are a Bible-teaching, truth-proclaiming church, to remember that God is the God of the miraculous. And sometimes I don't pray enough for God to move in wonder, to move in power in my life, in the lives of you, in the lives of this area. So I've been praying, God, bring revival. God, do it again. But what I love about this passage and what I love about the Bible is that it's both and. It's, tr- it's power, we see that there, but we also see this incredible commitment, not just to, mer- to the miraculous and to the spectacular, but to the doctrinal, to the truth, to minds enriched by the substance, by Scripture. And so you see the emphasis on truth in the following verses. Let's look, first of all, Verse 21, it says, when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak. This is after they've been let out of prison by this miraculous work of an angel of the Lord. They get put in prison, and an angel lets them out of prison. I mean, I would have some boldness after that. And they go back to the place that they've been told not to go back to, and it says, verse 21, that at daybreak they began to teach. They began to proclaim the good news. It's emphasized again in verse 25. Verse 25 says, uh, someone came and told them, this is to the council, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Verse 25, 
Oh, sorry, that was verse 25. Verse 28. We strictly charge you, now they've brought them before, they've brought the apostles before the Sanhedrin, and they said, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, this name that offends us, this name that according to chapter 4, verse 12, is the only name given by which men may be saved. You're teaching in this name. And then again, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And look how it ends in chapter 5, ends in verse 42, and every day... Every day, the consistency of it and the, and, and, the, and the diversity of it in the temple and from house to house. They did it in the religious center of Jerusalem, the temple, and they did it from house to house. They did not cease what? Teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. God was doing the miraculous and he was also proclaiming the truth through these apostles, through these ones that had been given his Holy Spirit. We're a truth people. We're also power people. We've been given the Holy Spirit. And right in this chapter, I believe the Holy Spirit is challenging us to pray bigger prayers, to trust God for more, to ask his spirit to bring revival into cold hearts, hard hearts, that's when, the, that's when it gets fun. When we get to see God move in power because of truth and power together. I forgot to read an illustration of this. And I'm sure John Bachelman, who's back with us this morning, been traveling and travels around the world. Um, God's still doing this stuff. I got an email just on Monday from a college-aged student. Um, man, I used to babysit this kid when he was four, and now he's in Uganda proclaiming Jesus. And his email update from this last Monday says that they're in the capital city of Kambala, I think is how you say it, Uganda. Is that right? <clears throat> You're not going to correct me. Uh, anyway, they're, they're in Uganda, and they're evangelizing. And uh, he says, we met this, this older gentleman named David. He was partially blind. He couldn't see close up or read at all. We shared the gospel with him, and we shared stories about Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus. Mark chapter 10, one of my favorite stories. Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus. And, and by faith, at once we prayed for him, and his eyes got better. He said, I can, I can see. And then we prayed again, and his eyes, he says, uh, his, we prayed again, and the Lord restored his eyes completely. He was so excited, he came to church on Sunday and gave his life to the Lord. Now, we can read about these things in books. We can hear them from missionaries like John. They go around, and, and God's moving. And I've been to these places in India and Africa where you, you hear about this. And God gives people dreams, and they see Jesus, and they hear the gospel even in their dreams. God's not done. And this isn't me, but it's a friend of mine. It's a friend of a friend for you. He's working. Not only as we follow Jesus is there's this wonderful uh, power and truth, but there's also this push and pull. That's the second heading here, this push and pull. What do, what do I mean about that? What do I mean by that? I mean as the gospel is proclaimed and as we live with Christ-like distinctiveness in our communities and in our neighborhood, there will be this push against us and this pull to us. 
both, sometimes simultaneously, that people are going to immediately reject the gospel. You drop the Jesus word on your neighbor, and then the next time you feel, you know, the garage, you know, the wall go up metaphorically and the garage door go down, like, had enough. There's this push away, but there is also, and they felt that. They felt this particularly from the religious leaders in this day. There was the push away. Don't speak about that name. Don't talk about that issue. But there's also this pull that crowds are are being drawn to them. Look at this again at verses uh, 13 and 14. None of the rest dared join them. Why? Because people are dying. I mean, they just, Ananias and Sapphira last week, they they were hypocritical and they just dropped dead. And so when people drop dead in church, you know, there's a, tend to be a reaction about that, you know, might hurt attendance next week. But it also might help because uh, none of the, you look at verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And you also notice after they get called to the Sanhedrin, if you look at verse 26, the captain with the officers, with the officers they're going to go in and bring these guys before the, the court. And it says, the captain with the officers went in and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of, the, of being stoned by the people. Like, they're upset, but they're also afraid because Jesus, because Jesus' apostles have, have gathered this great crowd and he's rallying people and they're hearing this news of forgiveness that doesn't come through priests, it doesn't come through sacrificial offerings, but, become, but comes through the person of Jesus. And so people are drawn to that, particularly the weak, particularly the helpless, particularly those without power, particularly those that feel guilty. And if that's you this morning, welcome to church. This is a good place for you. Because Jesus draws and Jesus heals and Jesus saves the hurting, the guilty, the weak, those who don't have life together. And so there's this push and there's this pull. You could say it like this. You could say that that our lives and our message will be both appealing as well as repelling, attractive as well as alarming. Hey, I want some of that. Hey, stay away, not interested at all. But what happens is sometimes we judge success by just one or the other. So those of us that are really bold are like, if I'm not offending people, I'm not being a real Jesus follower, right? Well, you may just be being a jerk, you know? You might be an obnoxious neighbor. Uh, but there's, all, there's also some of us that, man, you, you have a winsomeness with people. People at your work, they, they really respect you. They love you. They have great things to say about you. And you might have attracted them, but you have not yet repelled them because you haven't really been bold enough to put it on the line, right? And to follow Jesus faithfully, holistically, is to be a church that's both attractive as well as repelling. And too often, I am good at neither. Neither attracting people, neither repelling people. Just lukewarm. It's both and. Power and truth. Push and pull. And then finally, opposition and joy. 
opposition and joy. We've already kind of seen this, but uh, they've got some opposition. They're going to continue to have opposition, right? It reminds me, uh, maybe you've heard the story about the the military recruiters that go to the high school seniors and they give their recruitment speech and the army guy goes and the navy guy goes and then the marine guy goes up there and he says, well, I was going to give my speech, but I'm looking out here at the audience and I don't see anyone that'll make, that is likely to make the cut. <laughs> and so all the 18-year-old boys come up after him like, I want in on that. <clears throat> if you're scared of opposition, don't sign up for Jesus. Or sign up, but don't really live for him. But if you're following Jesus, there's going to be opposition. It might come in different forms. It's coming in different forms here than it is over in India or Lebanon where John's been or Jordan, places like that. It's going to look different. But it comes, and it's coming. And so don't expect your Christian life to be all giggles and easy stuff. Because Jesus himself told his disciples, John chapter 15, verse 20, he says, if they persecuted me, remember, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. They loved him, they persecuted him. For following Jesus, there'll be opposition. It might come from our kids. It might come from neighbors. It might come from your spouse. It might come on Facebook. But there'll be opposition. The Apostle Paul said it like this, 2 Timothy 3.12. It says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. You haven't signed up for daycare. You signed up for war. You signed up for the Marines. And though you are weak, God will protect you. God will hold you through the persecution. It's amazing as you look in this passage, the progression of opposition. This is fascinating to me this week. If you flip back in chapter 4, verse 2, first of all, the religious leaders, you see them in chapter 4, verse 2, they, they start out by just being greatly annoyed, it says. I love this. <laughs> Boy, isn't that great? Greatly annoyed. My family gets greatly annoyed at me sometimes. Greatly annoyed, but look at how it progresses. Chapter 5, verse 17, it goes up a little because he says, then they're not just greatly annoyed, but they're filled with jealousy. It's escalating to the point where you get to verse 33, chapter 5, verse 33, and it says, when they heard this, religious leaders heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And that's the wild thing. Gamaliel helped him out, and he had this nice, kind of distant, emotionless response to the gospel, right? He's being very stoic. Hey, you know, if it's a man, it'll die out. If it's a God, you're not going to be able to stop it. Now, C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if untrue, is of no importance. But if it is true, it's of 
ultimate importance. And so the one step Gamaliel must have, should have taken is not just this distant, you know, academic, you know, kind of focus on it. It, it should have been like, and if it's true, we need to check it out because we don't want to be opposing God. These guys are either crazy or they're onto something, but we need to investigate it. And that's the way the Sanhedrin took it. They thought, we either need to bow down and worship this guy or we need to kill him. And that's what they were out to do. That you can kill us, you can kill the apostles, but you can never kill the church. In fact, one uh, second century church father named Tertullian said it like this. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of the church. What happens when you persecute Christians? They grow. Go online and read about the explosive growth of the church in areas today where it's persecuted. Think about the church in Iran. Think about the church in, in Egypt, places where it's hard, where it will cost you your life to follow Christ, and the church is growing. Tertullian went on to say, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. And yet... What's their response as they leave this trial? Verse 41. Because not only opposition, we're not just given a fight, we're not just given a battle, but we're also given this spirit-endowed joy. Look at verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They just got whipped, and they went out rejoicing. How could they do that? Only because they had a leader who was whipped and beaten and died and conquered it all with a resurrection. And so I love, as one theologian has said, Don Carson has said, I got no problems that a good resurrection can't fix. There ain't nothing in my life going so bad that a good resurrection can't fix. Sometimes a good resurrection is the only thing that will fix it. But they could rejoice because they had truth and they had seen that truth demonstrated powerfully. You ready to suffer? You can only suffer, though, if you have joy. You can only suffer well if you have the joy of the Lord and you know this truth and you've experienced Jesus' power. Here again, in this church unstoppable, we, we see a group of people that somehow have changed from a bunch of fumbling idiots to powerful, bold people because of the resurrection, because of the Spirit of God living in them, they're able to be more bold. They're able to be more convinced and go to their death for Jesus. 
How's your boldness? I mean, most of us aren't going to be pulled before the Sanhedrin this week. Most of us probably won't even be pulled into court, I hope. And if you are, plead Jesus before the judge, you know? But you might have an opportunity to say something in front of the boss. You might have an opportunity to tell the client what you did this weekend. And for some of us, being bold may just be inviting the neighbor to come with you on a Sunday morning to church. And if, and if we're fearful about that, think about what the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John would say to us if they were here and they had just coming out of Acts 5. Come on, you suburban wimps. Put it out there. Be bold. For some of you, being bold, this may just be, it may just be beginning to open the Bible and pray with your kids. It's bold. Your wife's looking at you like, what got into you? I'm being bold. What would boldness look like for you? Your boldness will not cause faith. It will still be the Spirit of God that moves people to faith. But if you have a risen Savior who conquered death, and you have the Spirit of God in you, you can take a step out of your comfort zone. Will you? Do you believe it? Pray with me. Father God, forgive me for being neither appealing nor repelling, for lacking faith in your power and lacking confidence in your truth, for being weighed down by the petty and the normal and being robbed of joy. Give me boldness, God. Give my friends, my brothers and sisters here, boldness to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, to step out for Jesus. And Lord, as we come to your table this morning, may we be reminded that we don't leave here in strength. We don't come in strength. We don't leave here in strength, but we come in weakness because Jesus himself came in weakness for us. He sacrificed himself so that we could live. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. God, as we feed upon Jesus this morning, would you empower our hearts to scatter with boldness, to speak of Jesus this week, It's in his beautiful name we pray, amen.